Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett, if that's your real name. Wait, am I only your guest if that's my real name? Yes, that's that's the grammar of the sentence that I just said. Okay, so. well, um, <laughs> I guess fortunately it is. I mean, it's not oh, like my yeah, old name. Supposed- like, I have a couple middle names and patronymic mm. and um some like nicknames that only sort of sound like my real name but sometimes we're going to use them in the text just to confuse us even more mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it is a name that i have right and then you know if it's said in a french accent it might be different too and like <laughs> yeah yeah um because we are very cool and speak the language of the antichrist right <laughs> As all good people should. Um, I mean, know thine enemy, right? That's I guess, yeah. If you're, Sun Tzu you're, said that, right? How are you going to see him coming if uh, you can't speak his language? If you, if you don't even know what he's saying, right? Yeah. I don't... Um, so. Well, I guess we haven't we haven't done the thing yet. So, okay, since the rules are, are not in place, um, I yep. am going to say this, that... I don't remember where, but I read somewhere a while ago that, like, Tolstoy is responsible for one of the best and one of the worst first paragraphs in literature. Because, of course, <laughs> the opening line of Anna Karenina is, like, mm-hmm. one that people can quote who haven't read it, the the All Happy right. Families one. Obviously one of the best opening lines in literature. And I guess the, the opening of War and Peace, which we talked about, you know, in the last episode or two, is, like, considered just one of the worst. Like, you're not supposed to start in dialogue. <laughs> you're not supposed to start with an info dump. Right. You're certainly not supposed to start, like, in a language that's different from the language of the work that you're doing. <laughs> hey, bien, mon prince. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, let's uh, let's get to a point where you can't say stuff like that anymore. Yeah, let's do that. Um, we are... A little bit uh, already. Yep, we are drinking uh, the Scotch Krieg Isle Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, age 12 years, uh, in American Oak. So as we pour this out, would you call your wife for the rules? Your wife for the rules? No, that means that's you. That's, well, because I know you can't hear him, but okay. Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? 
If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Thanks. Thanks, dear. She wasn't, Much appreciated. She wasn't amused at my little joke. Did she say we are not amused? She did. She says Good. that a lot these days. She's I. She's also yep. taken to drinking a, a. Oh shoot! What was the queen's cocktail? It was like Dubonnet and Dubonnet and gin. She's taken to drinking. Mm. I think that she's doing. She's like. You know people in insane asylums who think they're Napoleon? I think she's doing that, but with Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> I don't know if this is too soon to do this bit, but, like, most of my ancestors are Irish, so. So you're allowed to rag on the monarchy. I just don't care. Like, I, I genetically right, you, don't right. care. Like, I don't have any respect. Okay. So. You you genetically have no caring bone in exactly. your skeleton. So. Yep. That's, well. that's a, that sure is a sentence. That's that's the sentence that I said right there. So with that, uh, schlank. Schlank. <laughs> we go keep a rule. Michael is sprinting to the inside of his house. Uh, pretty impressive how he's sprinting with a glass of liquid in his hand. Of unnamed liquid. Um, also very clever how... Despite not being here, he almost got me to break a rule while himself uh, following a rule. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling kids and... Your, your stupid that, dog, too. And your stupid dog, too. Somewhere we took a right turn from uh, <laughs> Scooby-Doo and landed in Oz. I mean, they've done enough crossovers, Scooby-Doo has, that, like, there's gotta be a Scooby-Doo and Oz thing somewhere, right? I mean, it almost, I feel like the characters would almost work. That's not what this show is about, though. No, it's really not. And I Um, shouldn't have to tell you that. (laughs) No, Because you're the host. Um... Yes, you're correct about that. And as the host, I am going to draw us back into this behemoth of a soiree that we call War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Maybe, you know, maybe just shirking your hosting duties. Oh, sorry. Go on. Uh, uh, Well, hmm. (laughs) Good comeback. Throwing some shade, huh? Yeah, I know. Um, It's the first time for everything. Yeah, it's true. Um, okay, I I feel like in the last episode, we were discussing possible things to discuss, like, leaving some cliffhangers of possible things to discuss in this episode. I have no idea what those might have been. I did not write anything down. Yeah, I Um, also didn't, and also, not to, you know, uh, show anyone behind the curtain, since we're still in Oz, I guess. Uh, Pay no attention! (laughs) <laughs> we recorded that episode one entire day ago, and I have completely forgotten everything we said. Yeah, um, so this might just be a full repeat of the first two episodes. Well, hopefully not that. 
All we have to do to not do that is discuss something that's not in, like, the first 50 pages. That's true. That's the only thing I remember from yesterday. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, so there, there's a, a subject that I think we touched on a little bit as something we could discuss more of, perhaps, and that is the subject of fate. I don't know if we discussed that too much last time. Um, but And I don't know that um, Tolstoy himself would even like the idea of putting fate in there, but a, a sort of determinism... Um, I think is present. I think the specter of determinism certainly is present. Mm. And I think that how corporeal it is might be mm-hmm. something that could be debated. Um, sure. Cause we, we certainly did talk, I think last time or the, or either the last time or the time before about the list I had made of, um, you know, things that Tolstoy thinks are impossible to know why you get better after an illness, uh, why battles are won or lost, uh, mm-hmm. who, who, uh, sort of, sort of, uh, uh, you know, steers the ship of history as it were. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think there, there sort of is a common theme that runs through the, these, this is, these are of course based on like a series of digressions that Tolstoy gets into when he gets into some of his more, um, essayistic uh yeah. portions where where what start as a sides almost turn into chunks that you mm-hmm. could almost take out as like self-contained little like essays um on mm-hmm. certain philosophical topics or philosophy adjacent topics um and this running theme is essentially that like you know to take history and historians for example they talk about Napoleon as a great genius because he made such and such a decision at a battle. And Tolstoy, right. if Tolstoy's sources are are correct, um, which matter matters on a historical level much more than it does on a literary level. But um, assuming that Tolstoy's sources are correct, or 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 his his research or his knowledge, like. That you know, quite often these battles that Napoleon gets credit or other generals get credit for genius maneuvers at, they had no idea the maneuver was happening, and and Tolstoy kind of just <laughs> deconstructs in a way that if this novel had been written a hundred years later would be called postmodern. He deconstructs the idea of cause and effect. Um, yeah, and I think that it's, uh, I'd say a a um not invalid not inherently invalid reading to call that fate or to call it determinism i'm more comfortable with the second idea than the first the sense i got though and this is just my interpretation very much of these these passages partly based on what i know we talked about last episode a little bit or maybe more than a little bit is told uh Tolstoy's sort of religious underpinnings and, and mm-hmm. ideas and convictions. Um, at a few places in these passages, at least in my translation, the word providence creeps in. And I don't know, sure. you know, what the Russian word is that's being translated that way. So you know, I don't know how accurate of a translation it is. But my suspicion 
is that unlike a lot of writers at this period and a little bit later, you know, were like determinism was a very big, um, almost a philosophical fad for people to believe in or mm-hmm. um, to at least play with. We've talked in the past about like Thomas Hardy. I think that may have yeah. he may have even come up in the last couple episodes. The idea of character yep. as destiny. Um, you know, and a little bit later, like, especially in the last half of Mark Twain's life, so late 1800s, early 1900s, Twain would become a very big believer in an arguer for a pretty extreme determinism. Um, the idea that mm. like, sort of everything we do is irresistibly predetermined from the moment of conception, essentially. Um, right. That a Shakespeare is predestined to be a Shakespeare and, and all the way you know, back down. Um, I don't think my reading of it is that I don't think that's what Tolstoy is doing here. I think that in arguing or in even sort of, uh, uh, deconstructing the idea first of the great man theory of history, that's his obvious target. The idea that history is Mm -hmm. shaped by a few geniuses or a few people with a lot of power, a lot of position and a lot of genius. In deconstructing that, and then also deconstructing the idea that we can even, because the opposing theory is usually often called trends and forces, so it's the idea that mm-hmm. that trends and forces in history sort of create the illusion of great men, but it's really these mass movements. And Tolstoy is even somewhat deconstructing that idea, and I think mm-hmm. that what we're left with is a mostly unstated but heavily implied argument about providence about the idea of Mm -hmm. a divine hand guiding and shaping history and this like reduction to absurdity or reduction to you know um sort of the reduction to the inability of anyone to know why anything happens the way it does much less to control it in spite of the fact that Mm -hmm. like certain things happen in a certain way that seems um, you know, it seems like, like cause and effect. It seems like, uh, uh, you know, the outcome of one or many wills sort of exerting themselves. Like, um, the, the solution to that paradox is somehow that there's like an invisible divine hand sort of guiding events, like that you're inevitably left with that idea. Um, right. And to, to me, I was, I was getting echoes even in sort of the, you know, there, there's like a biblical element here of, of some of the, um, like the ideas of, in, in, you know, you, you see it in the Old Testament a lot of God's will for a nation versus the will of the people of the nation. And that, you know, in the Old Testament, there's this mm-hmm. very like, it's almost out of sync with the way people raised in sort of mainstream American culture with an idea of God, the way that they're, they kind of conceive of an all knowing, all powerful God in the old Testament, because people can sort of resist as well or, or go against it and say, Mm -hmm. we want Kings and God will say, well, you're not going to like it, but here you are. And you know, there's so, you know, like in the invasion of Russia, I get, or, uh, yeah, the the Napoleon's invasion of Russia. I always get the sense in some of these passages that it's like, I don't know how explicitly Tolstoy would say it, but that it's this idea of that invasion as a great 
going against not necessarily the will of God, but like going against the natural order somehow oh, that sure. God has put in place. And that the fact that it fell apart was not due to anything that historians could know or that, you know, to either the Russian resistance or the um, failures on the French part. It wasn't due to any of those. It was due to like a lack of rightness or a lack of um, mm. harmony with sort of maybe the will of God or the, the laws of God or the, like the rightness. So there's something, mm-hmm. something in there. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm certainly putting words in Tolstoy's mouth to draw these conclusions. Like if they're there, sure. they are much less explicitly stated than I'm stating them. But that's like, that's the general sense I get of, um, you know, determinism or, or fate is, is more. Yeah. Than, you know, yeah. Go ahead. I, I think he does, he does leave a, a, a heavy hand of providence um, there in in a sort of determinism thing um so you know talking about the the passages that are um more about his like philosophy and stuff uh, let's like if we go to the the last 50 pages of the book sure. um yes. in in the uh, epilogue that's where he um becomes his his most didactic yeah as i as i call um, the last 50 pages the most skippable passage of the book. Uh-huh. So I- yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. But also at the same time, like, I think that also serves in a way, um, part of what we said previously that, that like reading that epilogue, it's like, okay, I need to go back and see what you wrote previously. See mm-hmm. how it jives with, with, um, I, with your, your philosophy and the epilogue and everything too. I joke um, about it being skippable. I will admit that I found it almost, I was almost trying to skim it on this my my second read of this book. Oh and sure, kept finding myself drawn in almost against my will. So, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm being slightly I, it's facetious. it's compelling. It's it's interesting. It is skippable in terms of the novel itself. Yeah, um, I mean, in, you but know, the the philosopher in me is very drawn in by it. The part of yep. me that is just like, as long as uh, Natasha and Pierre turned out all right like i don't I've, I've stopped caring like that part is the part that wants to skip it Hmm. um yes uh so i i, I want to draw attention to just a couple of brief pa- passages in the epilogue part one i'm not entirely sure how your chapters are delineated i hope they're sure. the same but epilogue part one at the end of chapter one um uh, mine is just one sentence broken into a single paragraph, and it says, If we allow that human life can be governed by reason, the possibility of life is in- annihilated, which is a super provocative sentence mm-hmm. um, on its own. But then uh, he leads into, uh, in chapter two, he starts discussing the terms chance and genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs in the words chance and genius do not designate anything that actually exists and therefore cannot be defined. Um, basically that those terms come out of a not knowing that I don't know why this is the way it is. And so I'm going to call it chance and I don't know why this is the way it is. So I'm going to call it genius. Um, yeah. And then he 
brings up this uh, this illustration of a flock of sheep and comes and says, but the sheep need only stop thinking that everything that happens to them occurs only to achieve their sheep purposes. They need only allow that what happens to them may have purposes incomprehensible to them, and they will immediately see the unity, the consistency in what happens to a fattened up sheep. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, I, I, it's, it's a... It's a Drawing uh, along the same sort of um, uh, what he praises earlier as well, the idea of not knowing, mm-hmm. um, that being okay not knowing right. uh, is is something that uh, that he he praises. And that's something that he's bringing out here, that rather than uh, say, I don't know, so I'm going to make up a new law for what this is, instead just, no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, um, for one thing... And I am, you know, once again, and as usual, like, gonna just talk out wildly out of my depth here. Um, But I think that there is an element of, like, Orthodox Christianity with a a large uh, uh, capital O in that idea. I think that Orthodoxy, Orthodox traditions, um, Orthodox writers tend to be much more comfortable with a sort of almost mystical um, uh, not knowing and like not knowing might be a capitalized phrase uh, in sure. terms of, you know, cause again, this, 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 even this set of passages you've been, you've been quoting here, like really just puts me in mind of, of Tolstoy thinking of, of humans relationship with God. Right. And the idea that like, mm-hmm. um, you know, what happens to us might be part of a larger design that God has that we can't know or aren't even equipped to understand. And there's an argument for faith in there too, right? That that being comfortable with not knowing yeah. if you're in the hands of a divine being, that's the only way that you will sort of know their will. Or so you know, there's there's um Maybe I'm just sort of primed both because of my under- knowledge of Tolstoy and because of my my own religious beliefs. Maybe I'm just primed to see that there. But like every time we, you quote something like that, that those, it's those religious ideas that just jump out at me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so like it, some of this is in the text too. some of the, the religious ideas um, and thinking about the, like, even the change in characters that occurs. Um, So you've got the character of Prince Andre, um, and his sister is Princess Maria, who's, like, the hyper-religious one, Mm -hmm. um, and, like, welcomes in the pilgrims and everything, and, um, like, even alienates her friends with how how devoted she is to to religion. Um, And he kind of makes fun of her a little bit, even though he he does love her and and all that, but he's, he's maybe a little bit more of a... A skeptic, and I'm trying to find the exact passage, but it's in Volume One, Part Three, um, like the very, very end uh, of Part Three. And there's this whole thing about the infinite sky, where he he's wounded in battle, and he just is taken in by the infinite sky. Um, uh, where is it? He imagined. Um, uh no okay something ugh, man I'm not finding it but it's 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 at the end of volume one part three no I know the um, passage that you're talking about um yeah 
sorry, what were you going to say about it? Can you say it in like a more Well, it's, way? you know, it 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 connects with and he he doesn't fully adopt a sort of dogmatic religious position as a result of this. Um, but there is a religious overtone to this idea of seeing the the largeness outside of oneself. Really? Yeah. Like that's No, that that passage very much reads as a religious conversion passage. And I think that mm-hmm. um, people, I think that writers who have very strong religious opinions, but also understand um, what, like, f- what fiction's greatest strengths are, um, especially yeah. no- the, the novel's greatest strengths, I think that often they resist... Um, I think that one of their greatest fears, and I say this partly as someone who um, has pretensions to write fiction, is interested in religion and and fears it myself. But the fear is that you write what ends up sounding like a like um, what Mark Twain would call a Sunday school book, like a a, oh, sure. a book where the fictional scenario jibes one for one with your religious convictions, such that like you know the the cheap version would be an atheist has a near-death experience and immediately like converts to christianity like that's you know sure you like you could have a story that's that but to make it authentic and real you would have to um it, it would be very tricky you'd have to do a lot of work and and you know so forth so i think that what tolstoy yeah. is doing is giving prince andre a religious experience but i think it's a much more hmm. realistic um version of a religious experience in that like quite often the experience and um the belief that follows from it uh aren't aren't in the same moment um sure and that quite often i think it's it's you know sometimes years afterwards that uh uh, you know, whatever that experience is, that 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 the full meaning of it sort of, sort of mm-hmm. um, overtakes you, or even that you embody it. Um, there's a, a, I was trying to remember, was it William Wilberforce who, sort of, was a slave, um, like, was a British man who like like was part of the slave trade, like ran slave ships, and then had. Sort of a, a, I was gonna say sort of. It's not at all sort of a religious conversion experience. And oh, helped, um, um, not Wilberforce. No, um, uh, John Newton. John Newton. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Who wrote Amazing wrote Grace? Amazing Grace. <laughs> yeah. And one of the most striking, you know, and his his life has been so mythologized into sort of an evangelical. Oh yeah. Um, uh, success story success story that yeah I, i'm I, <laughs> I i'm not fully endorsing everything you might ever hear about him but one of the most striking things that i ever did hear about him was that it was five years between that religious experience and when he stopped participating in the slave trade um mm-hmm. even though especially as the story got told later you know it was that religious experience was about like Oh, I can't. I can't be part of this. As you know, as, these are all children of God. You know, it was. It was all right. Sort of tied up together. Um, 
And I think that that's often how, you know, and again, this, this language has been so heavily colonized by a certain um, wing of Christianity that is not always my favorite. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it's often you have, you, the people seem to have this sort of experience or revelation, but I guess I'm repeating myself now, but the, the meaning of it or the, the acting on it comes mm-hmm. years and years later um mm-hmm. and you know there's there's a uh this may be a tenuous connection at best but it was just something i wanted to to mention at some point um in my mind a parallel scene or passage to that is when prince andre um i forget where he he's going but he ends up staying in a room is it, it's not in my mind it's at bald hills but i don't think it that's right he ends up staying in a room mm. below um uh, oh uh, yes natasha's um yep and it's again it's one of these passages that's like it, tolstoy and dickens in my mind are the two specialists in them where it's like it's a passage where very little happens externally like it's all very normal Mm. like going places but like the inner like some of dickens's most powerful like you know uh uh weeping inducing passages are just people walking around streets in london um and this passage with prince andre he just you know he kind of he goes to this estate because he he uh, uh has some business to transact there um he stays mm-hmm. he like i don't know i think natasha smiles at him or something as he passes by in his sled he stays in a room below her that night he happens to overhear a conversation with her and like those are the external actions but they're the catalyst for this like internal just like a, what again amounts to what feels like a spiritual revelation or a spiritual epiphany um and it's partly in my mind because I mentioned, I think in the first episode, that I watched the Soviet film from the 1960s um, mm-hmm. about this. And the the that film portrays that passage beautifully. And the instant that, like, Prince Andre sort of gets recalled to... Because, you know, with, with the death of his wife and, and, and his experience in war, he's, he's at this very low place, right? And... And part of what his experience with Natasha is here is, ends up being like something that kind of calls him out of his own misery and out of himself. And in the film, you just have sort of a scene of, of him overhearing this conversation between Natasha and um, uh, the, the other, the young woman who's, who's like her companion. Throughout yeah. The book. Um, uh um sonia sonia yeah between right? the, yes I, I believe so between natasha and sonia i believe anyway in the film like he hears that conversation and because you know you can't like for the most part other than with voiceover which is pretty clunky you can't like visually mm. represent in film a um uh you know an, an internal change like that what the film ends up doing is doing this almost like it's very sixties new wave avant-garde adjacent, but um, it, it just 
breaks into this like interstitial passage of these like beautiful like nature scenes um Mm-mm. and they're just like some of the most gorgeously filmed shots in the movie and it's very much this like it, you know if you're if you're if you're paying attention if you're tuned into what's going on in the movie you get like almost this emotional arc through the juxtaposition with Prince Andre being called out of himself in back into an idea of beauty, you know, an idea of, of a world and goodness existing outside of himself. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do want to also say part of the reason that this passage stuck with me. um, And I think, you know, I think to be fair, I think it is parallel to, um, the the largeness of the sky that you were talking about michael but um part of the reason this passage stuck with me and it's i think it's more or less the same translation or this in in both um uh translations that i read and it also is in the voiceover in the movie is like the button on this passage like the very last line on it Mm. is something to the effect of Prince Andre realized that life was not over for him at the age of 31. Um, uh-huh. Yes. Which I want to say I especially appreciated having read this novel for the first time at the age of 33 and the second time at the age of 34. Like, it's just very reassuring. <laughs> um, yes, yes. So, yeah. That's, that's good. I think, um, I think I found... I don't know if this is exactly the same passage, but it's... it's um, similar in uh movement and it's in volume two part three chapter 19 okay. volume two part three chapter 19 um two three 19 um and this is where he is visiting the rostovs and natasha starts singing and he's affected by it um and it says uh Prince Andre stood by the window talking with the ladies and listened to her. In the middle of a phrase, Prince Andre fell silent and suddenly felt choked with tears, which he did not know was possible for him. He looked at the singing Natasha and something new and happy occurred in his soul. He was happy, but at the same time he felt sad. And then um, there's more that goes on and he's trying to reason out in his own mind, like, what's going on with me? Um, and later, uh, as, as it gets close to the end of the chapter, um, it, he's he's decided or he he feels you know, he's in love with her and um then he uh or no it says it it does not it did not occur to him that he was in love with miss rostov he was not thinking of her he only pictured her to himself and owing to that his whole life appeared to him in a new light um and then and then it says and for the first time in a long while he began making happy plans for the future uh and it says i must use my freedom while i feel so much youth and strength in me he said to himself pierre was right when he said that one must believe in the possibility of happiness in order to be happy and i now believe in it let the dead bury their dead but while i'm alive i must live and be happy he thought um it's i don't think that's exactly the same passage but it's it's got the same if um, it's not the same passage it's certainly like on this following the same sort of track right or storyline because there was an occasion too, and I think it might be later where he was um, like listening out the window um, to Natasha having a conversation too. But I, the the fact that those two things are very similar and exist um, and that, that Andre can kind of go through multiple sort of conversion experiences, mm-hmm. I think is, uh, it's part of Tolstoy's kind of writing genius and writing philosophy and um, flies in the face of, that um sort of 
um, Sunday school book right sort of thing too um that like you would expect at the end of this chapter done andre's arc is over he's a new man he's he's moving on here but that like we've still got 800 pages in the book um to go uh in this and he he does it again he goes through a similar conversion again and like he gets what he wants and then he loses what he wants there's the the whole arc of Andre and Natasha and their engagement and the breaking of the engagement and everything that's just so tragic um, that but I, I mean you think about who Andre was before and who he was after um, these multiple experiences that he had um, I think I, I think the effect it takes on him is different um, than it would have otherwise. And that it's, it's more of a, a progressive change in his character than like a tipping point, so mm. to speak. It's like, this is one tipping point, but there are multiple tipping points throughout. And whereas this might seem like a huge deal in the moment to Andre and to the reader who's reading this in the grand scheme, this was one moment and it's, it's not shifting everything. His right. his whole world hasn't completely changed. It's just it's like a one degree turn right. um, that's going to continue to progress. And I think that gets to some of the reality of these characters. And you you mentioned you know being authentic um, in in the 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 way like a conversion experience would happen. You, if you want to do that authentically, it's not just a wham bam. Um, it's uh, it's a process. Yeah. <laughs> There's uh, there's a lot more that uh, that goes into it. There are moments and things, and it, really, Andre's conversions throughout the the book don't end until he's dying. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that there's and that's yeah. Go ahead. No, and I mean, and that's that's like then that's the conclusion, right. and and really, um, even in his death too, we we get a sense of. Uh, a, a comfortable resolution to it, but it's it's the same sort of resolution as we've had repeatedly um, throughout the whole book. And so that means, uh, I think, that it's the only reason the only reason that's the final uh, conclusion for his conversions is because he dies after. Right. Uh, it's not that he dies after because it's the final conclusion. Right. It's the final conclusion because he dies. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think that's... I think that there's... Um, I think that the only characters in the book who really reach a full arc, who, who really you can talk about a complete arc for, are the ones who die. And it's only because mm. once they die, their arc is inherently over. Like it's, it's Right, and I think that, you know, that... That gets to, um, you know, what uh, what he was saying about the sheep, right, in the epilogue, that, like, w we naturally want to be able to encapsulate a character arc in a way that we can understand. But he's saying, no, you can't understand it because you don't know when they're going to die. And so if they're still alive, their arc isn't done yet. And because it's not up to them to create that arc, the, that arc is outside of their comprehension, outside of your comprehension. And so it's it's written to, for lack of a better term, um, into when they die. That's that's when the arc is complete. Right. right. It's it's something externally developed. Right. Absolutely. Um, though I will say, like, it's it's interesting as you were kind of 
outlining uh, Andre's, you know, kind of arcs or, or sets of conversions or, or whatever the most appropriate phrase would be. Um, I, I think similar a, a similar thing could be said about Pierre. Um, there are mm-hmm. parts like like relatively early in the book that in a different book would be Pierre's whole character arc. Like even when um, oh sure there's you know he uh, tries to institute reforms uh, you know almost right away I want to say he kind of he kind of um, when he ends up with this inheritance which. You know, we can talk about time, chance, uh, uh, fate, and providence as far as as far as even that little hinge goes. But um, when Pierre kind of ends up with this inheritance, uh, uh, he almost right away kind of goes through a a learning process where he ends up wanting to sort of reform his estates and and take play take part in this sort of. Uh, um what to us now seems like a a an inadequate foreshadowing of the very extreme communist reforms that would take place later um <laughs> but you know it, it, i mean there there was very real truth to the fact that like pe- russian peasants in the 19th century were living a life equivalent to you know their their counterparts in any other nation in europe 500 years earlier or whatever um mm-hmm. you know and he has these very very um charitable desires to reform and then you have this wonderful passage where he like very intentionally puts forth these like progressive reforms but without understanding you know mm-hmm. any of the people around him or any of the the culture really that he's trying to reform and they they go disastrously Whereas Prince Andre essentially does what Pierre thinks he's doing, but Andre just does it more out of like necessity or what he views as necessity, and it it goes really well. And yeah. you know that's but that's at like page two hundred or like that's the beginning <laughs> of Pierre's um uh education, and you know even when Pierre like becomes a a Freemason and and goes through sort of a a different but still very real type of religious conversion experience to um different to prince andre uh you know mm-hmm. again for better or worse in a lot of books that would be that would be it that would be pierre's whole character you know um mm-hmm. but P- i think pierre's real change his real conversion experience comes um when he uh is is a prisoner after you know after he mm. his sort of yeah um uh uh you know half his half attempts to assassinate napoleon or, or whatever like <laughs> um and again even even from that like there's the the irony the almost um uh-huh um you could you catastrophic irony that the idea of a positive catastrophe yes. of him sort of like turning here almost and rescuing these peasants and like even that's not what sort of like gets him to where he needs to be it's this it's this right. extended experience of of suffering i think that um really is the like the rebirth experience uh that 
he almost seems to want throughout the book, but like doesn't um doesn't notice it when it's happening. Um but that said, all of these other experiences are like you know, they're they're uh uh planks in the in the walls of the house that this this um prison experience prisoner experience whatever uh ultimately helps him build um mm. so it's it's you know it's again it's another i think there's a parallel track there of of like incomplete conversion experiences one degree turns um mm-hmm. you know again with our with our storied tradition yeah. of assigning term papers or, or whatever this would be a, <laughs> the the parallel conversion experiences of of pierre and prince andre would be um an interesting one that would be a fascinating and you know but also you'd almost you'd have to uh include natasha too because she has yeah she has her own track of of various conversion experiences um well I think you know it, yeah it, the this sort of schema that has been suggested to me ever since we discussed Don Quixote um and looked at Nabokov's um uh tennis match analogy mm. to to Don Quixote like I I want something similar along those lines but instead you've got all these different players on on the board and so just just comparing them all in terms of those conversion experiences and i i don't know what sports metaphor you could you could employ in there the closest thing i'm thinking of is chess i was about to say chess um, where they're each players in in on a chessboard but um that's that's like the closest i can get to to thinking about that but yeah something where you analyze them all in terms of their conversion experiences the whole way and i so I, you know while you were talking about um pierre and stuff i was looking at the the passage about Andre's death um, that comes um, at the end of volume four, part one, uh, Tolstoy does this very provocative thing with Andre's death um, where Andre is talking uh, sort of um, in a fever delirium thing. And he says, uh, yes, death is an awakening. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it's his clarity suddenly came to his soul uh, and it goes on. Um, uh, the the last paragraph before there's a a, a larger break in between um, paragraphs says since that day there began for Prince Andre along with his awakening from sleep an awakening from life and it seemed no slower to him in relation to the length of life than an awakening from sleep in relation to the length of a dream and that's I mean just so provocative and then it says there was nothing frightening and abrupt in this relatively slow awakening as it goes on and then we get this experience of him slowly um dying but it's in in the uh frame of an awakening he's waking up and then um when he finally dies it says when the last shudderings of the body being left by the spirit occurred princess maria and natasha were there is it over uh and my translation has a question mark and an exclamation point Uh, in the dialogue here is it over said princess maria after his body had already lain motionless before them for several minutes growing cold uh natasha went up looking into the dead eyes and hastened to close them she closed them and did not kiss them but pressed her lips to that which was her nearest reminder of him where has he gone where is he now um and then it goes on into um their their grief and his funeral and stuff and then like we don't get the full grief until many 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 pages later there's more uh, intervening in here but that's part of this whole thing that it's it, it's not sudden again um 
Tolstoy takes his time on this, and I think there's a point to that taking time, uh, is exactly the same point, that the conversion uh, takes time, that the arc takes time, takes many arcs, many phrases. And so even with Andre in death, when he gets to that final resolution, um, there, there are questions surrounding it. Um, first of all, Maria asking, is it over? Uh, and we as the reader know it's over because the, the narrator has said the last shudderings of the body being left by the spirit occurred. So he's dead. That That's done. And so when Maria says, is it over? We think that has happened immediately. But then it says after his body had already lain motionless before them for several minutes, growing cold. So like there's still time passing in between um, there. He's really, really drawing this out. Um and uh, then with the, this final question, where has he gone? Where is he now? Um, furthers that question of, is his arc done? Mm-hmm. Um, is he still growing? Is he still going to have more conversion? Is he still going to wake up more? Has he completely woken up um, or or not? And the, the key there is um, Maria and Natasha don't know, but... Um, they they've they've gotten this glimpse that he they, there's there's this bigger process being involved here like the sheep mm-hmm. <laughs> uh again yeah. like there's 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 a bigger purpose than their own sheep purposes mm-hmm. um right so uh like and, and just i think that's that's really key into his whole point is the 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 time it takes is not a timeline that we can track. Mm-hmm. Um, and the arc that seems to be there is not as clear cut in one direction. It wobbles and wavers and is filled with irony and twists and turns and upheavals of expectations. Yeah. yeah. I have two very brief uh, <clears throat> remarks I want to make. Um the first since this this passage has come up is that I believe uh, if you count this sort of the extended passage of Prince Andre like dying um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me to include back to like when uh, Natasha finds out that he's there in their sort of improvised wagon train of a retreat from from Moscow and she goes to him through to her and um, um, Maria sort of v- sitting vigil by his, his bedside as he, as he passes. Um, if you count that all as one unit, which seems fair to do, uh, this is mm-hmm. the one passage that I believe made me weep uncontrollably both times that I read this book. <laughs> fair. Um, Very fair. <laughs> uh, secondly, um, just in terms of talking about, you know, in terms of everything that we've kind of talked about this episode, I think your so what what the the last sort of thing that you said, um, I think maybe captured best like the central sort of idea that we we've, we've been batting around that has to do I think with the bigness of this book, um, and mm-hmm. why it's its largeness is so appropriate because I think that, you know, there are a lot of books. There's, I mean, Dickens comes to mind. Even There are though, a lot of books. There are a lot of books. That's a very profound statement. That I <laughs> uh, no, there are, there are, you know, a lot of big books, especially from the 19th century 
seem like they're big almost for no reason or almost for bad reasons, right? Like, mm. um, mm-hmm. again... Because they were getting paid by the word. Because they were getting paid by the word or by the chapter. You know, again, Dickens comes yep. to mind. Uh, 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 <laughs> Alexander Dumas or... Um, um, Hugo, Victor, Victor Hugo, Hugo was paid that way too. Uh, uh, you know, the, where it's like, you can read it as a big book and enjoy it as a big book, but like the experience would not be very different if it was broken into four smaller books or if indeed like a, cer- a central like 300 pages of very little plot were ripped out to make a much smaller book. Like you get the sense that it would be the same. Um, most of Walter Scott's 700 page novels should be short stories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Okay. Um, But like, I think that part of the reason that this book remains so beloved and so relatively widely read for sort of a 19th century classic and, and, you know, and, and even knowing that like Tolstoy did publish this in chunks in, in parts, like it was somewhat serialized or maybe not even somewhat. It works so well as its own 1500 page or whatever page count, Mm -hmm. like, world like it it works as a novel that just is this long and couldn't almost couldn't not be this long like there are maybe certain passages where right tolstoy waxes poetic about the great man theory of history or whatever that's like you could trim but i think at the most unlike say some of dickens's earlier works where you'd probably lose several hundred pages and not miss them um Mm-hmm. Like I think at the most you'd trim fifty pages of this book without losing, like, s- something significant about it. Um, yeah, and you know we can talk more about that idea uh, uh, later on, obviously. But like, I don't know. I I think it's the only book I know of that is even nearly this long that that is true about. And I think that's part mm. of like its its status and its like enduring status as a classic. Is it to have these story arcs, to have these these um, conversion experiences of various kinds, whether whether you buy that they're religious or not, like to have the story sort of play out the way that it does. Like the book just needs to be more or less this long. Yeah. Yeah, it it's it's huge, but it doesn't waste its words. Um, Again, for the most part, some of those some of those great man for the most theories part. stuff like you could, skip. but yeah, yeah, but yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah, no, very good, very good. Well, let's uh, let's leave it there for the purposes of of this episode. Uh, we've got one more episode in which uh, we are planning to discuss this, unless the book um, tries to kill us some more. Um, which it might, it you might. never know. Um, it might. <laughs> um, but uh, so next time, uh, if we indeed do finish uh, our discussion, then we will um, get to our, our ratings. There haven't been any uh, rule breakings yet. And is, I'm very disappointed in you, Ethan, that for that. That is um, true. Um, I have been very so, selfish. Yeah, you, that. you really have. Okay. 
Very, very. But um, feel free to join the discussion about this mammoth of a book. Uh, TapestryRadio.org, if you go to the contact section, uh, put Scotch Talk in the subject line, you can communicate with us about the book there, or uh, on Twitter, technically, at Room with Scotch, or on Facebook, if you request to join the Tapestry Radio Tap House, we will let you in, uh, unless you're dead. Um, in which case, don't don't try. Like, it's don't, too creepy. Don't try. It's too weird. Yeah, very much. Very weird. Um, but we will do your homework. Go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast and input your homework there. And uh, we'll, especially English homework. We're not we're not asking for math or science. I mean. Um, or anything like that. We'll analyze you, some you math try, homework I guess. to like see what themes and tropes it can. It, it, yep. it won't be very good for anyone. It won't be. It won't be. But English homework, you bring that, uh, and we'll we'll do that homework on the podcast, uh, and then you can turn it into your teacher and get hauled off to plagiarism jail. Ha 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 ha. Um, and if you like this show, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the RPG Actual Play Fiasco Podcast. Uh, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, where three grown men talk about a children's book series from a hundred years ago. Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast, and Shakespeare in the Village, the companion podcast to the Shakespeare in the Village uh, outdoor theater productions. Uh, Ethan, any... Self-promotion by you. Nah, I mean, you can contact me through the Tapestry website. That's probably probably best. Yep, same here. That's the, the best way to, to get in touch with me if if you want to. Um, so, until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if we watch one of our friends slowly die on his deathbed. Or if Tolstoy writes and, about it. Or if Tolstoy writes about it, which I mean, he was he was a good friend. Bye, Andre. Bye, Andre. We love you. We, we love you. <laughs> <laughs>